How well do you feel you know your body? So many of us have had different experiences with health education. For example, while I was fortunate to have sex ed in school, many states today don't even mandate it. Even during my time in medical school, women's physiology was relegated to a brief section at the back of my textbook. And if you're a regular listener to this podcast, you're already aware of how women have been historically sidelined in research, which in turn limits our knowledge about the female body. Hi, I'm Dr. Mitzi Crockover, and welcome to Beyond the Paper Gown. Our guest today is a data scientist who came to realize that a significant number of women lack a comprehensive understanding of how the female body works, and that this knowledge gap has tangible health implications. She was determined to bridge this gap, so she applied her scientific research skills and authored a book, Demystifying the Female Body. Today, we'll delve into why females are the biological default for humans, explore the idea that women might be the more resilient sex, and uncover some surprising ways hormones function in the body. By the end of our discussion, I believe you'll see the female body in a whole new light. And just a reminder that this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice. Today, I'm welcoming Dr. Lisa Falco, who is lead consultant for data and AI with a specific focus on healthcare and women's health for the company Zulk. I've invited her to talk about her book, Go Figure, The Astonishing Science of the Female Body. Lisa, it's great to have you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. Uh, and you're joining us from Zurich, so uh, which I had the honor and pleasure of uh, visiting this past summer. Yeah, thank, thank you again. Of course. So I have to tell you, you and I met at a conference where we talked about, uh, we had a workshop that was focused on how women get their healthcare information. And I thought it was a really interesting conversation. And at the time, I didn't know it, but then we, then you connected with me and then um, honored me with giving me a book, your book, that you had actually written a book on the woman's body, basically, and how it works. And uh, so talk to us a little bit about how you came to do that and what you wanted to accomplish in doing so. Well, um, as as you said, my title is Data and AI, so that might seem a bit off to write a book about the female <laughs> body. Uh, but the way it started is that I was working in a femtech uh, company, uh, Ava, Ava Women. We developed a bracelet to track the menstrual cycle and to use uh, vital parameters like, like heart rate, breathing rate, temperature and other parameters along track those along the menstrual cycle and based on this data uh, find out when the women were fertile and I was um, I was leading the data science team and I was developing together with my team we were developing algorithms of trying to understand all these vital parameters and really calculate based on that when you were fertile and I thought it was so fascinating how, how hormones could have such a big impact on our body that it actually changed our physiology in a way that we could measure it with sensors. 
and I come from a science background. Um, I like to have, you know, hardcore data to look at this. And here I could really measure what was happening. I mean, I could see how, depending on where you are in your cycle, the heart rate changed or how the temperature changes uh, along the cycle. And there were so many fascinating details. And to build really good algorithms, you need to understand what you're doing. You need to understand the biology. I was the first employee in the startup, so we were a really small team uh, in the beginning. We were only, uh, I, I was number five together with the founders, and then we, when we were 10 for a long time. So you had to really step in and work everywhere. Uh, so I did a lot of customer support in the beginning. Um, talking to the women that were having problems, very often they were having fertility problems. And also I was helping the Facebook groups or helping other teams just to, to answer questions about their data. What does this mean? And so often I, I realized that, that there was such a lack of knowledge. And that lack of knowledge had a quite big impact on these women's lives because if they would have known more about their cycles from the beginning, if they would have known more about their fertility, they would not be in this situation maybe that they are now. And please, do, I'm not saying that this is the solution for everything because it really isn't. But there are quite a few cases where this fundamental knowledge about your body could have helped these women to, to a better pregnancy journey uh, to not be in the situation they were in at that particular moment. Sure. So I felt that there was a big need. And and I learned so much. And I actually, I really wanted people to know this. Um, because there's a lot of knowledge hidden in scientific publications, uh, in a very difficult language to understand. And yes, as a researcher, you know, I, I've learned to read and decipher what this really says in these um in these papers, but it can be very difficult for someone who hasn't got that background, who hasn't got that education to actually uh, to understand it. You said that the default human is a woman. Mm -hmm. Can you explain yeah. that? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, I on purpose worded it like that because in society, that's not really how we've seen things in the past. Uh, but actually, the first uh, embryos, or, or if, if an embryo develops into a full-grown baby without any type of intervention, it will become a woman. However, if you have a Y chromosome, there's like a master switch on the Y chromosome. That will change, that would alter that natural development and turn it into a man. So I just really, you know... I love that. And then you also mentioned unexpected consequences of the female body's transformations. Give us an example of what one of those consequences is. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, the hormones, we, we learn about how they work on the reproductive system. But we, uh, but hormones are like small keys floating around in your bloodstream. And we have small keyholes called receptors a bit everywhere, not just on the reproductive organs. And we have receptors in the brain, we have receptors in our guts, we have receptors 
basically everywhere. And whenever those hormones comes into the bloodstream, they will trigger these consequences. So um, it will change your metabolism, it will change uh, your mood, it will change uh, your sports performance. It has such an impact on, on so many parts of your body that you would not expect it to. You know, and I think that that is so key because especially um, when we're starting to have changes, whether it be puberty, pregnancy, or menopause, you can see the impact of the mm -hmm. changes in hormone levels um, on places that I don't think most people think about. And so when you talk about mood, for example, I think that's probably one that a lot of women would resonate with because I mm -hmm. think that there's a sense during a cycle um, that you know mood changes uh, depending on what part of the cycle that you're on. We know about the issues with postpartum depression. What I think might be surprising also though is the impact of those hormonal changes on mood in perimenopause. Do you want to say mm -hmm. something about that? Well, perimenopause is, it's a very bumpy period because yes. the hormones are really going <laughs> up and down and it's very unpredictable. But, but estrogen has a very high impact, a positive impact on our mood. For instance, it, it brings out a lot of serotonin, makes us feel happier. And the same also for, for progesterone, it, it calms us down often. And in perimenopause, this hormonal level really starts dropping and becoming lower. It's quite, yeah, it, it's quite common to feel, feel low. And uh, even uh, go into depression where you don't have this additional uh, serotonin. It also has a huge impact on our capacity of dealing with stress because uh, the cortisol even further breaks down uh, the serotonin and without the estrogen that counteracts this effect, um, it can really weigh, weigh heavily. So things that we were able to do before in terms of stress burden, we simply, um, yeah, we have to slow down. You know? And you do make a point of saying that um, there may be kind of a window of opportunity to use hormone replacement therapy, or what we're calling hormone replacement therapy, to mitigate some of the challenges of perimenopause. And I think yes. we're finding that more and more. Yeah, and it's very important actually to start early, directly when you, you reach uh, a menopause and not wait too long, because that can have some detrimental effects on the cardiovascular system if you wait too long um, but um, yeah it, it's, it's a lot of discussions around hormonal replacement therapy and I think it's really something that's important to discuss yeah with your doctor because based on your individual uh, needs um, it, sure. it will be very different and even for those who either don't want to or can't take hormones um, you also note that the environment impacts on our health yeah now especially this uh, the stressors are, are very big and also it's a moment where um, you, you also do need to eat better and you need to to do maybe more sports but not in different types of sports muscle building becomes quite quite important because with estrogen we build less muscles and at the same time 
Estrogen is very important in the building of our bones. And when the, and the estrogen goes away, our, the bones become more brittle. And that means you need a better support system to prevent, first of all, to prevent falls. That's really important with uh, having a good muscle. It suddenly becomes important in a way it wasn't when you were younger. I'll speak for myself, not good about doing things until there's a, you know, a reason or, or a, a crisis. If I think women understood this, then they might prepare earlier. So exercise, strengthening exercise, making sure that uh, taking enough vitamin D and calcium uh, rich foods and that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but also it's also important, it's never too late to start. Even though I have far down, that's also important. Yeah, so it should be both, you know. You know, you spend a lot of time on pregnancy and rightfully so probably because of your background but you know and work but also again it's a huge issue for for women are there one or two items that you would want to call to our attention that women may not be aware of yeah it comes back a lot to this if you imagine all the changes we have during the menstrual cycle they are triggered by the same hormones and now suddenly you have a hundred times sort of 300, 500 times the amount of hormones in your body. So it's changing everything. It's changing your metabolism. It's changing your, um, your, your, your brain as well and your mood. And I think that's quite important to understand that there's actually a structural change in your brain that kind of prepares you to become a mother. So if you feel that you have changed during pregnancy, it is a very natural, um, natural consequence of these hormones. And you should also remember that something that's positive in terms of evolution, that this has happened. So, you know, trying to embrace it. Wait, are you but saying that mommy brain is evolutionarily positive? <laughs> it is. It is. How so? <laughs> <laughs> no, but imagine yourself, you know, you have... Um, when you're pregnant, your your amygdala grows. And amygdala is the part of your brain that recognizes risk and reacts to risk. So it makes you more anxious. But what offspring is the most likely to survive from an evolutionary point of view? Is it mothers that, you know, are a bit anxious about their offspring? Or is it the ones that just completely leave them? And all of these things that sometimes now we try to suppress, it it was a crucial factor for survival of our species. And this is why it's a good thing. So everything we are today is because it's the best for humanity as a species, right? Well, that, that is a great um, point because now I have a reason for being anxious, but is it supposed to go away once you're not pregnant? Because it didn't go away for me. <laughs> it doesn't go away, no. It's changed. It changed quite a, a lot. And now... I mean, I've read only, you know, in the years following pregnancy that it doesn't go away. So beyond these first years after, I can only speak for myself. Uh, and I felt that my anxiety did go down, like over 10 years or, you know, now it's 15 years since I had my children. But what happened then is <laughs> that you have your testosterone, which is really high when you're young. And I was, when I was young, I was really 
a risk seeker. I did a lot of extreme skiing, extreme sports, and I love that. And then I got pregnant. And overnight, I started crying because I was afraid I was going to lose grip of the trolley. Um, So it was quite a big change (laughs) for me from doing extreme sports to that. And then, of course, it went away and I could start doing more and more. But when the amygdala effect was gone, my testosterone level has probably dropped quite a lot in the meantime. (laughs) So I would never reach the level of risk-taking that I had in my 20s or early 30s. That will never come back. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's... But it's also okay. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you change. It's, you know, every part of life has its own perks. That is very true. Yeah. Well, now, I, yeah, again, now I'm going to point to this to my kids and see, say, see, <laughs> mom wasn't crazy. It was just evolution. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's good for you. Yeah, I just want to say one more thing about the mood in pregnancy, where I think it's really important to understand is that this estrogen and progesterone, it makes you really happy on average, not for all women, but many women are really happy and their happiness keeps growing because of this over-pregnancy. But then overnight, when the placenta comes out, this hormone-making machine is gone. And that means that you have, they, they drop to zero immediately. And this has a really hard negative effect on your mood as well. And this is why... 80% of all women, they get baby blues when, when they give birth. And this is so natural and there's nothing you can do about this baby blues because these positive effects, they're just gone overnight. And it's, it can be a very hard detox period. And it's just important that you have a good support network to help you through that so it doesn't grow into um, postpartum depression. Because that, that can happen, it's, it's, it's real, it's common. It's just really important to get help if it happens. Yeah, but I think your point is well taken that, you know, to really ha- keep an eye on whether baby blues is really becoming postpartum depression because that is something that really does need to be attended to. Mm-hmm. It can be quite severe in certain women. You also talk about the fact that... Um, there's DNA from our children still <laughs> circulating. Explain that. Yeah, there are actually, you can find cells of your children that you gave birth to, you know, five, ten years down the line. You can still find cells or, or DNA traces of them inside your body that is circulating around. No one really knows, I think, what the impact of this is, how it happens, but of course they've been a part of you. And in some way, it's, you know, it's kind of romantic saying that you always keep a part of your children with you, but it's actually true. I mean, it's, it's biologically true. I love that. I think that yeah. that uh, is so remarkable. Um, well, backing up, you give a great discussion about menstruation. It's like I want to, again, give every uh, adolescent and perimenopausal woman, if you will, um, that, that part of the book, because I think it's very, we, we don't talk about it a lot, and people don't know, am I bleeding too much? Am I bleeding too little? You know, does it matter if I bleed? So talk a little bit about what you found uh, most interesting. 
in school very often you say, yes, an average menstrual cycle is 28 days, maybe 29, but it's always a distribution and the range of normal is much, much larger than that. Um, also, it is important to bleed because the, the bleeding is a sign that your menstrual cycle is working properly and it's a sign of you being healthy, healthy enough to have the menstrual cycle. And if you have too many stressors or if you don't have enough fat on your body, for instance, the, the menstrual cycle will stop. Or if you have other, um, other hormonal issues like, like PCOS, um, polycystic ovary Polycystic, yeah. yeah. Thank you. Um, and um, something else is about menstrual pain. That I think it's quite important to understand that a little pain, sure, but it should not be that you cannot go to school or go to, to work because your menstrual pain is too high. Then it's unfortunately quite likely that you have um, that you have some underlying issue like endometriosis. And the problem is also often that it's hereditary, right? So your mom probably had the same. So she would think it's normal for you to be in pain because she was in pain and her mother was in pain. So we're kind of taught to tough it out. But if it is too much, then you should get examined and you should push for really understanding what it is and see if you can, can do something about it. When you wrote the book, and you talk a little bit about, you know, looking at the research. And we know that there's been a dearth of research on women um, and women's health. What, where did you see some of the gaps? And do you think that when you write the update to this book in five years, it'll be a different book? If I can start with the first part of your question it will be so much new I mean I'm not sure how much will change some of the things will change for sure because it's based on the latest research and this keeps this field keeps evolving so much and it's quite exciting to see everything that is happening and all the opportunities that women's health research is offering I think it's also a research stream right now they people start realizing it's a field that has been completely understudied for a very long time. So it has yes. been neglected in the past. But that's what every researcher dream of, finding a field of study that still has so many opportunities <laughs> and you can make some great publications. And, and I see such a great momentum. And I also see not only on the research side, but the farming industry is really... Um, they are very eager to develop in this direction as well because it's a huge market. It's 50% of the market that has been neglected and they start realizing what a huge potential that is. But to the point about the pharma industry, you know, you make a point, and we talked about this earlier, that hormones and our, you know, differences in our body changes how we metabolize um, things they're the adverse reactions that were found in what eight out of ten drugs were found in women so the impact is is pretty significant in terms of knowing that information 
it has been neglected in the past and there are a lot of drugs that are out there on the market today that have only been researched on men and we are fundamentally different as you said the metabolism we digest drugs differently uh, we have a different body fat composition we have our hormones that are influencing everything um, but since uh, since a few years it's been a huge progress in including women in clinical trials so moving forward it's going to change and i was at the conference today and then they even talk about how the cell itself is different from from a male and a female and the importance of including sex already in the preclinical trials and in the on the cell on the cellular level and uh, on the animal models so it's coming a huge change there as well there is still quite early but a lot of progress has been made yeah i hope so you know it's interesting that in, at least in america the mandate was in 2016 to include sex as a biological variable um, mm -hmm. to address exactly what you were just talking about and you know that brings me to remembering uh, a question I wanted to ask you, and that is about the differences between men and women in terms of inflammatory disease and autoimmune diseases, and the fact that our immune systems really are different. Yes, so women's immune system is actually stronger than men's immune system. That's why uh, I, I call them in the book the stronger sex because it is more active, it's reacting stronger, so it's better in, in fighting diseases. And which might sound amazing, uh, indeed, but it also has some quite bad side effects. Um, one of them is that we actually get, we feel sicker more often because since actually the feeling of being sick is often the, this the reaction of the immune system that you're feeling, that, that reaction is what makes you feel sick rather than the disease itself. So we can often feel sick more often, so it's a bit contradictory. We have a better immune system, mm -hmm. hence we feel more ill. Um, but then, It's more sensitive. Yeah. And then we have the autoimmune systems, which is when you have such a good immune system that it's kind of turning, turning itself against your own body which is why we have many of those um, um, autoimmune we, we are more prone to MS, uh, lupus, and some other autoimmune diseases. No, exactly right. And, um, you know, and I think it's really interesting, we saw that in COVID, right, that uh, women might have uh, a, a better immune response with respect to COVID and men were, were we're not faring as, as well, mm -hmm. so. Um. But it's also been shown that we have stronger effect, I mean, that also makes us react stronger to vaccines. Yes. So we often get more secondary effects of the vaccines as well because we're reacting stronger to it. Um, so. so there's pluses and minuses. Yes. <laughs> I did want to talk about a little bit about um, sex because I think that's an interesting topic and talk about the impact of hormones on sex and what you found surprising or interesting yes so um, 
one interesting factor is of course when we uh, when we have more lust and that is really in the first part of the menstrual cycle when you have the estrogen um, is higher because that first of all it, it improves your mood and it also um, generates some changes in the vagina with, um, so it lubricates and that also um, stimulates lust but the one that gives you the most of all is that just before ovulation or around ovulation you get the peak of testosterone and uh, that peak of testosterone really gives you a boost uh, of wanting uh, and actually go looking uh, for sex as well and what's interesting is that it also helps you to um, uh, to get an orgasm because <clears throat> sorry, because the, the clitoris and the penis they're actually they come from the same structure they just develop differently in the womb but fundamentally they are still kind of the same and under when they have more testosterone they swell so when we get this testosterone peak the clitoris swells and that makes it much easier to come to orgasm in that period just before uh, your ovulation so that's smart way of nature well this has been a great conversation i want to just close with a few uh questions. I want to kind of do a lightning round. We'll see if this works or not. And mm -hmm. uh, uh, because at the beginning of your book, um, you talk about uh, learning some many unexpected things. And so I'm going to kind of maybe uh, read a couple of those to you and you can explain them a little bit. You talk about that um, vision and voice changes with the menstrual cycle. I did not know that. No, that's fascinating. But it's again, we have receptors um, both in the eyes and we have receptors uh, in, um, uh, on the vocal cords as well, which is also why you change over puberty, right? And why your eyes get bad uh, of the menopause as well. I mean, it's, it's all connected and, yeah. and it even changes then during the menstrual cycle as well. That's yeah. interesting. And when we talk about the menstrual cycle, um, I think that there's this theory that if you're in a uh, house with other women that your menstrual cycles synchronize is that true <laughs> there was one study in the 70s that claimed that but that has never been repeated uh, by anyone and we also it doesn't make much sense that it would right because if we would all ovulate on the same time it would be much more complicated um <laughs> <laughs> so you don't subscribe to that. And then the last one you says that men can breastfeed if given the right hormones. Yes, that is actually been proven that they can. I mean, the milk is generated by by prolactin, but then you also need to have some structure changes in the breast to 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 give you this capacity of of breastfeeding. But that is all hormone induced during the pregnancy. So if you give men the same cocktail, they will have the same uh, changes of the breast structure and with the prolactin as well, they will start generating breast milk. So. That's fascinating. So it really does show the significant impact of hormones. Um, if we add any question about how important they are, um, I think that that uh, really does speak to the fact that they are so important. Well, I love this book, if you can't tell, and I thought it could, I, I could see so many uses for it. 
what do you hope? How do you hope that this book will be used? I'm really hoping that people that read this book will see how marvelous and remarkable the female body is and really appreciate it for you know, that amazing function that it has. Sometimes I feel that when we think about the female body, we tend to focus on things that are maybe not so important and forget how extraordinary it is that it can do everything that it can do. So that's, I just, you know, want to highlight that. And then another factor that I think is important is that often we're seen as a mystery. It feels so strange that we are the way we are or unexplainable. And so often as well, women are not being taken seriously. Uh, for their feel how they feel about the body, how they or how they feel mentally, not only I mean not only by society but also by ourselves. But when you understand that there's really a mechanism behind this that are triggering these changes, I'm hoping that you would become more tolerant towards yourself and towards others and understand that we all go through different things. And that's really something I would like to achieve with my book. And of course, help women with their health. I think that's so beautifully said. And you had said that in the book. And I thought, wow, that's kind of a, that's an aha moment for me. Because uh, one of the biggest uh, complaints, I think, that a lot of women have with the healthcare system and with their providers is that they don't feel understood. And they don't feel um, uh, empathy. And we like to leave folks with some um, action items that they can take on their own uh, to be more healthy. What would you suggest? I think it's very helpful to track your cycle, if you still have them, talking to that. Because understanding how you feel in different phases can really help you a lot. And it's also remember... We often focus a lot on PMS, on the negative part of the cycle, which is normally just, you know, a couple of days. But we should not remember that the rest of the, uh, the cycle, we're kind of doped on these hormones, then. that's a superpower. So really understanding how we're influenced in the different parts of the cycle, that is, it, you use it as a superpower, you should see that something really positive. And then that you have a few bad days, well, you know, just take care of yourself and, and try to survive them. But also remember, it is because that the, all the hormones have dropped back to the baseline and there's basically nothing. They're, they're removing all your doping that you've had before. So um, you should see it as something positive. Yeah, I think that's so important to be aware of your cycle. I don't think a lot of us... Um, think about it and basically uh, think about it as how you can use it mm -hmm. to your advantage, even maybe by scheduling some things, uh, depending on where you are in your cycle. Yes. And, and also something I would like to say, which I know sometimes it's almost a bit controversial to say, but it shouldn't be controversial to say, is that we are more fertile in a certain age and after a certain age our fertility it's not like a strong drop 
So it's not, sometimes people talk about the fertility cliff at 35. That is not the case, but it is starting to drop. And it's important to know this um, so you don't have expectations that can't be fulfilled. And it's a bit late to think about your fertility when you're 40. You should think about it in your 30s, not in your 40s. And I'm not saying you should make any kind of decision, but it's just important to be aware and to know the facts and know what you're dealing with and then make your decisions based on that. Really great advice. And I think that goes for your entire book. Um, There's so much there that I think a lot of uh, women and, you know, men could get out of in terms of understanding their bodies better and then being able to then um, use that information to or put that information to good use. So Dr. Lisa Falco, thank you so much for joining me today. Dr. Falco is author of Go Figure and she is also a lead consultant for data and AI for healthcare and femtech at Zulki. And last but not least, we can find your book, I know, on Amazon. Is it also available um, on other vendors? It's available on all online platforms, both in Europe and America. Well, I highly, uh, I highly recommend it. Thank you again. Thank you so much. I hope you found this conversation as enlightening as I did. I also hope you'll go to our website for more information. And while you're there, subscribe to our newsletter. I also invite you to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform so you won't miss out on future episodes. Thanks as always for listening and take good care. Our podcast is produced by Patrick Shambayati and me, and our associate producer is Kyla McMillian.